One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. Please stay after the closing song for this episode's patrons. Done Nox, Solitis Redines, Eduta Tenebris, Cheget Rusrum, Nebulo Teram Teneboso, Tunc Iterato, Viam Studiut Precure. But presently, as soon as dusky night scattering its shadows had withdrawn, and the heavens began to redden with the rays of the sun, she concealed herself in secluded caverns. And now she would wander in the wilderness, and now lurk in furrows amid the ripened ears of growing grain, until night returning enrobed in its wanted darkness and shrouded the earth again with its sable cloud. Then a second time she took pains diligently to pursue the path begun. At last the guards, not finding her, apprehensively related the fact to account upon whom the duty of safeguarding her majesty had been imposed, and he, grievously frightened in heart, proceeded with many comrades to seek her out. And when he grew weary and was as yet unable to learn whither the distinguished queen had directed her course, he with great fear of heart reported the matter to King Berengar. The king, too, immediately flew into a passion of anger and began instantly sending his subordinates in every direction, instructing them not to pass by a single spot, but to examine minutely every hiding place in the chance that the queen might lie concealed in some such ambuscade and he himself followed with the full force of a brave legion as if he were a man out to conquer a fierce foeman. In his speedy course he passed through the very grain fields in whose winding furrows the lady whom he was tracking down was hidden under a protecting curtain of blades of growing grain. But although he ran hither and thither through the very section in which she, a victim of numbing fear, was screened from sight, and though with all his strength he tried to part the surrounding stalks with his extended spear, Yet he found not her who the grace of Christ had shielded. But when he had retraced his steps in bafflement and weariness, the holy Bishop Adelard presently arrived and with joy in his heart conducted his queen within the goodly strong walls of the city we have already described. Here with all respect he duly attended her until from the compassionating Christ she received the recompense of a kingdom greater than the one she had previously relinquished in distress. Quote from Gesta Adonis Imperiatoris a play written by Hrostvita of Gendersheim. Everyone's right and no one is sorry That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning Greetings, my name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, through the Wars of the Reformation. This is episode 30, Adelaide. 
Over the last few episodes, we discussed events in East Francia after the death of King Arnulf, through the Age of Disunity and culminating in the coronation and consolidation of the realm by Otto I. Otto started his reign by projecting an image of unity and legitimacy, but he faced resistance both internal and external from the very first year of his reign. Internally, his brothers and half-brothers joined with important dukes who disliked Otto's imperious style of rule. This rebellion bled into external conflicts, inspiring Slavic uprisings and drawing Otto and the king of West Francia into decades of mutual interference. But by 943, these and other conflicts had largely been externalized by Otto and his supporters. By allying alternately with Hugh the Great and Louis IV, Otto was able to divide Western Francia internally and contain the conflict. The forces thus freed up were available to focus on the Slavic uprising, which, despite some initial Slavic successes, devolved largely into asymmetric warfare that never really threatened Otto's rule. By 950, Otto had forced the Wendish Slavs into submission, the Danes into peace, the Bohemian Slavs into an alliance, and had so aided the Burgundian royal family that they joined his little empire more or less voluntarily. Today, however, we must return to Italy, as the story of East Francia and the story of Italy are about to begin their final fatal collision. But first, a quick note about titles, heredity, and what they tell us about power in Italy. In episode 27, you may recall that I was throwing around the title of Emperor to describe a variety of people, and in fact, I was emphasizing it. Astute listener Arvin pointed out that this was incorrect in a couple cases. The title, Emperor of the Romans, was conferred on Charlemagne in 888 by the Pope and was passed down to his successors. As we've discussed, that was initially Louis the Pious, and then Louis's eldest son Lothair, and then his son Louis II, who ruled in Italy. In Italy, of course, the local rulers had taken on the traditional title of King of the Lombards, the Germanic tribe who had conquered northern Italy. So from this point on, the titles of the King of the Lombards and Emperor of the Romans went together for those who ruled in the Frankish state of northern Italy who were successors of Louis II. It should be noted, however, that they technically remained separate titles. It was sort of the equivalent of having someone be both President of the United States and Governor of New Jersey at the same time. Over the years, they came to be given at the same time, and represented the culmination of the king and emperor's legitimate assumption of the role held by the descendants of Louis the Pious's uh, grandson. But as these rulers' hold on power became more and more tenuous, there developed an interesting problem. You see, the title, King of the Lombards, was one originally conferred by the emperor onto someone else. But in the wake of the empire's collapse, everyone was more or less happy to see this title as one assumed as the result of an election by a diet, which meant, in practice, someone having a big enough army that they could be taken seriously as a king, and cajole or convince enough people to acclaim them. We'll be talking more about diets in a future episode. But the imperial title was one that was seen to have a little bit more power and importance. And because Charlemagne had been crowned by the Pope, and because Louis the Pious was pious and had been crowned by the Pope, uh, and then the followers of Louis the Pious really needed to shore up their bona fides, it came to be that in order to legitimately be crowned, you needed the Pope to do it. This would lead to no end of debate, and in fact, the debate over whether or not you really needed the Pope to do the crowning is one that historians continue to have to this day, which is, I mean... Who cares, guys? But anyway, while the empire still stood, this wasn't a huge problem, and even after it broke up, most of the people who held the title held power in Italy and had access to the Pope. In fact, the coronation for both titles was usually done with the Pope in attendance, you know, at the same time. 
If the Pope had any misgivings about conferring the title, the presence of large numbers of armed men usually helped ease his fears. But after the fall of the Gideshi, political power in Italy fragmented. Berengar had not cemented his rule before Louis the Blind invaded, and the Pope actually crowned Louis the Blind as emperor. After Louis was, well, blinded, this put everyone in a really awkward situation where the man crowned by the Pope, you know, God's representative on Earth, well, that guy was in exile and had been forcibly blinded by the guy who actually held power, and uh, that guy who had been exiled, he had no real power even in his own territory because blinded. But Berengar was able to get acclaimed as the king of the Lombards on his own because he had the army, but the complex political situation with the title of emperor meant that he had to wait to be crowned as emperor of the Romans until after the Battle of Grigliana, which we talked about a couple episodes back. This gap between coronations and the clear weakness, both political and military, of Berengar had effectively separated the two titles and made it clear to the popes that they were the gatekeepers to the title now. This might not have been such a big deal if the succession after Berengar had not been disputed, but it was, and boy was it. Neither Rudolf nor Hugh were viewed as particularly legitimate, and Hugh was actively at war with the rulers in Rome for much of his reign. There was just no way the popes, <clears throat> quote-unquote, elected at the behest of the Theophylacts and the Alberics were going to give any kind of political power to Hugh. So when Berengar II was crowned king of Lombardy, the office he assumed was one much diminished. The kings of Lombardy had not been emperors for around 20 years at this point, and for all intents and purposes, the title was defunct. The man who ruled in Rome, Albrecht II, seemed to have no pretension for higher office, while Berengar II lacked the ability to secure it since he didn't control Rome, and thus the Pope. Needing the consent of the Pope to get the title had not seemed like a big deal in the past, but now the kings of Lombardy were separated from the title by the Apennine Mountains in a very literal sense. But Berengar II's position was not only weak because of the lack of the title at the end of his name. You will recall from episode 27 that after the death of Emperor Berengar the Schlemiel, Italy had begun to enter an advanced state of disintegration. Though never easy to govern due to its mountainous geography, millennia of Roman bureaucratic rule had made use of urban centers as a basis for administration. This was reinforced by the ownership of dispersed landholdings and rights over sources of revenue such as toll collection. As we've seen, however, two and a half centuries of constant warfare, neglect, and misrule had now begun to take their toll. Emperor Berengar of Schlemiel's policy of giving away large landholdings and numerous bureaucratic rights began to fatally weaken the bureaucracy, but failed to secure the loyalty of any of the beneficiaries of his generosity. He was overthrown by Rudolf of Burgundy, who was overthrown a year later by Hugh of Provence. Hugh continued the practice of handing out land and rights in return for loyalty, but was notably aggressive in clawing land and rights back away from those who he perceived as a threat to his rule. This would become pretty standard practice during the Middle Ages, but it angered the Italian aristocracy, to the point that when a force of exiled nobles returned to challenge Hugh, the country rose in revolt, and Hugh was driven from the country. Hugh's son Lothair was captured, along with Lothair's wife, Adelaide. So it was that Berengar of Ivray came to power in a wave of popular dissatisfaction against a tyrannical and paranoid king. Now, initially, we should note that Berengar did not become king himself. Despite securing military victory over Hugh, Berengar ruled as the chief advisor of Hugh's captured son Lothair, who had been crowned as co-king with his father previously. Why he went through this formality of acting as chief advisor isn't fully spelled out, but obviously Berengar did not feel that taking power himself was doable. 
Berengar's problem was, to put it bluntly, that he was illegitimate. So were almost all the kings of Italy, and Berengar II was at least the grandson of Berengar I, so it's not like he came out of nowhere. But for Berengar II, things were a bit more acute than they were for his predecessors. First of all, the issue of Berengar II's descent from Berengar I. Berengar I was himself only sort of legitimate, and was not super popular, and anyway, Hugh had been on the throne for 15 years, so it's not really likely that there were a lot of people pining away for the good old days of Berengar the Schlemiel. The big issue was Berengar II himself. You see, Berengar was... he was kind of a nobody. The previous kings of Italy had either been kings in their own right in lands outside of Italy, like Rudolf II of Burgundy, or King Hugh of Provence, or else they had been tied deeply in with imperial power politics, like Berengar I and the Gadeshi kings. Berengar II was, by contrast, the ruler of a small and inconsequential half-mountainous border duchy. That seems to have been at least part of his initial charm. He was just, you know, one of the guys. But despite his early personal popularity, no one was in the habit of thinking of Berengar of Vivray and going, man, Berengar of Vivray, there is a guy I need to take seriously. More concretely than this was the issue of resources. While many border duchies became large and powerful, such as uh, Spoleto, Ivray did not. Places like Spoleto and Friuli, which were ruled by the Gadeshi and Berengar I respectively, were actual imperial borders. The people on the other side of the border were legitimate targets of expansion, and presented a real invasion threat that justified the upkeep of large armies that were used to warfare. By contrast, Ivray was a new march territory, only set up by Lambert II, and it bordered Burgundy, who were allies of the Gadeshi and in all honesty, the Dukes of Ivray. So, while Burgundy was outside the Kingdom of Lombardy, it was part of the Frankish Empire, and really just wasn't a legitimate source of expansion possibilities. So, though the Dukes of Ivray, as border lords, did get to keep standing armies and maintain fortresses, they didn't get that constant expansion, which let them fiscally support larger armies, uh, as well as those armies having the physical experience of engaging in fighting. So, to review... Berengar had no legitimacy, because he had seized power militarily, because the previous two generations of kings had also seized power militarily, and because he had no real reputation as an imperial power player, and because he lacked major resources. And so, Berengar did not depose of Lothair right away. What the exact mechanism was here, we can't really know. It's possible that Berengar II just wanted to ro rule through a cipher initially, like, this might have been his idea. It seems a little bit more likely that this was imposed on him by the aristocracy to some extent. That would seem to jive with the version of the story we get from Liut Prand of Cremona, although, you know, I trust him as far as I can throw him, and since he's dead, I can't throw him very far. In either case, Berengar clearly felt that he needed to continue the charade that Lothair ruled. It should be said, though, that an initial benefit of this situation was that, though most of Hugh's relatives were removed from Italy, many of the bureaucrats in Hugh's administration seemed to have been retained. Notably, a young cleric from Pavia named Liutprand stayed on, and became Berengar's personal secretary. It seems likely that, with the exception of a few key supporters, most of the bureaucracy that remained stayed put, allowing some continuity between the administrations. Podcast footnote. Yes, this is that Liutprand, although he wouldn't be Liutprand of Cremona for a few years yet. Liutprand was from a good family in Pavia, the traditional capital of Lombardy, and they were fairly wealthy. He joined Hugh's court as a page and entered the court school. There he entered the clergy and became a rising star in the royal bureaucracy. He eventually became Berengar's personal secretary. So we're now at the point in the story where Liutprand is actually an eyewitness to events. 
Though, of course, he did not write everything down for some decades still, so there's, there's some looking back here. I've not made secret my dislike of Liutprand as a source. Liutprand doesn't so much wear his biases on his sleeve as much as he constructs a stylish garment out of his biases that he wears around town with a matching pair of heels. Unfortunately, like many historians better than myself, I have thus far been forced to deal with Liutprand as the only person writing about Italian politics in any detail, if at all. Now, as we enter the reign of Berengar II, his value as a source changes. There are a number of other chroniclers writing about the events of these years, but now Liutprand is the only primary source. So despite being an insufferable, prudish brown-noser, Liutprand's value as a source actually grows here. Yet another reason to hate him. For those interested in this kind of thing, I've prepared a short write-up about Liutprand, his life, and an analysis of his biases, which I will post in the show notes, as well as on the oft-neglected bibliography page. Check it out. End podcast footnote. So, Berengar took over and tried to rule as Hugh had ruled, indeed ruling through Hugh's son Lothair, but he started to run into problems pretty early. As was now expected, Berengar had to reward his supporters with lands or rights. But as we've discussed, Berengar did not have the vast resources to call on for rewarding loyalty. While often in this situation, where they are assuming control of the throne in an illegitimate fashion, kings are often able to reward supporters with the land taken from the old king's supporters. But the fact that Berengar's rebellion was focused on restoring people to lost possessions in all likelihood undermined his ability to rely on this source of patronage. It seems likely to me that the land taken from Hugh's supporters was more or less the same as the land that Hugh had taken from the exiles, and so once that land was restored, there may have been little surplus. Other kings in this situation would have then turned to the vast store of royal lands and possessions to reward loyalty, but as we've discussed in some detail, that particular well was going dry. Other kings in this situation would turn to their own personal possessions, which they'd had before becoming king. But as we just discussed, Berengar had little to work with here either. So Berengar is in the position of not being particularly wealthy himself, taking over a kingdom that was, in terms of the political economy of the Middle Ages, bankrupt, and needing to pay a lot of people. Somehow, he was able to satisfy and pay off his initial supporters. But this only settled his short-term problem. Long term, he was faced with the task of actually economically funding his day-to-day -day rule. As king, he needed to shore up, you know, continuing support, maintain a military capable of securing his rule, running the royal bureaucracy, and doing all the things rulers of the Middle Ages were expected to do to show they were kings, like sending out envoys to foreign princes and wearing fancy clothes. But now he had to do all this without the resources he had just given away to his initial supporters. And so this became a real self-reinforcing problem and the effects are seen as early as 945, the first year of Berengar's sort of rule. In that year, Berengar sent a candidate to take over as Bishop of Milan. His man traveled to the city, but arrived to find that the townsfolk had elected their own candidate. This kind of election is actually how such appointments were supposed to be made, but they actually fairly rarely were. The power of royal intimidation usually ensured that bishop seats were filled by the royal candidates, which allowed the kings to use them as part of the patronage available to the kingdom. Kings could give the office to the younger sons of key allies, or even sell them to raise cash. Watch this space. Anyway, the candidate elected by the townsfolk of Milan got himself securely ensconced in the office, giving him access to the revenues of huge tracts of land, and as we've discussed, as Bishop of Milan, he was effectively the ruler of a well-fortified and prosperous city, one of the few well-fortified cities in northern Italy. 
Berengar's candidate had the king's support, but ended up fighting a five-year war with the Milanese candidate over the position. The duration of this conflict could be down to a number of issues. I mean, uh, fortifications were a pretty big deal at this point. But at a basic level, it indicates that Berengar was just unable to offer the kind of effective military assistance needed to impose his will. Since Berengar was unable to actually put his candidates into the positions he was offering them, the perceived value of such patronage would have been less, diminishing the loyalty of Berengar's supporters, and also of Berengar's ability to raise economic resources. Another example of Berengar's precarious situation is the story of Liutprand's own first embassy to Constantinople in 948. At the time we're discussing, Liutprand was Berengar's personal secretary, and a strong supporter of Berengar and possibly even a friend although Liutprand may have talked this up. When the Eastern Roman Emperor requested a messenger, Liutprand was an obvious choice. Now, in 948, the Eastern Roman Emperor sent a embassy to Berengar II, with whom he shared a border in southern Italy, and requested a messenger in return, standard in exchange of, uh, of embassies, essentially. Liutprand was an obvious choice to be part of the mission. Beyond being loyal and literate, Liutprand's father and stepfather had both previously been to the great city, and the young cleric was in the process of learning Greek. So Berengar assigned Liutprand to the mission. There was only one problem. Berengar did not give the embassy any resources. Nothing. Now, you need to understand, this was a goodwill mission, simply intended to wish the Eastern Roman Emperor well, and ensure that the Emperor continued to wish Berengar well. For this kind of mission, especially in the Middle Ages, gifts are a key part of the process. I give you stuff, you give me stuff. We still do this today, but modern gifts are basically symbolic, like a small watch or whatever. The kind of grandiose gift-giving done in the Middle Ages might be viewed from a modern perspective as a kind of bribery, but it was more like a kind of gift-giving competition. Look at how much stuff I was able to give you. If I can just give all this stuff away, I must be super powerful and important. Massive bonus points if my gift somehow shows that I am particularly cultured, and thus more deserving of respect. A great example of this was the gift of an elephant that Charlemagne received from a Muslim ruler. The gift showed off how rich the gift giver was, because it was such an absurd expense to move a living elephant into northern Europe. The fact that it arrived intact and alive showed how much the forces of the gift giver were feared and, and how wealthy they were. The fact that the elephant was something entirely unique and was very pleasing to Charlemagne meant that Charlemagne would have a more positive view of the gift giver in the future. But then there was Berengar's embassy. He didn't give the embassy anything. Liutprand and his compatriots were asked to go to Constantinople, the last bastion of civilization, the heart of a powerful empire, a place which rivaled Rome for the title of the capital of Christianity. And they were supposed to go without any gifts. And not just no gifts, they weren't even given the means of transportation, not even horses, not even a malnourished pony named Bill to carry the baggage. Just a letter, and presumably Liutprand had to translate the letter into Greek himself. So, Liutprand's wealthy stepfather actually stepped in and outfitted the mission. Now, officers of kings in the Middle Ages were often expected to use their own resources for the fulfillment of their duties. But embassies were a little bit different. The gifts, at least, were supposed to be from one ruler to the other. If Berengar hadn't given the embassy supplies, that might have been one thing. But giving them no supplies and no gifts was... Well, it was an odd choice. And it seems that this was the beginning of the end of Liutprand's relationship with Berengar. Because Liutprand went on the mission and saw the insane luxury and power of Constantinople, 
which must have marked something of a contrast to Pavia, a city which had been sacked twice in recent memory, and Liutprand left Constantinople laden with gifts not only for Berengar, but even for himself, and supplies for his journey, and well wishes. And when Liutprand got back to Pavia in 950, Berengar still did not reimburse Liutprand or his stepfather for the costs of the journey. Liutprand left Berengar's court later that year. We learn a few things from this. Berengar was, at the least, unfamiliar with how international diplomacy was supposed to work in this era. Possibly he was uninterested in engaging in such a process. As a duke of a duchy of only moderate size, the kind of diplomacy to which Berengar was accustomed likely operated at a different level. And to Berengar, Constantinople may have been such a distant place that he may honestly not have understood either the importance of the city or the logistics of getting there. But given what we've discussed so far in this episode, we should also honestly consider that Berengar may simply have been unable to pay for his messenger's gifts. He may have wanted to, but was just never able to gather the funds. It seems likely that Berengar was not just treating Liutprand this way. All of our sources agree that over the course of his reign, people who had supported the king gradually drifted into the opposition. Given that bureaucratic administrations in late antiquity and the Middle Ages ran on patronage rather than salaries, it seems likely that this drift is indicative of people from within the royal bureaucracy gradually losing patience with Berengar in a manner similar to what we have just seen with Liutprand. This process only deepened the problems Berengar faced, because losing these officials meant that Berengar not only lacked money, but he also lacked people with the experience and intellectual skill needed to make up for his own deficiencies, particularly in the area of making more money. Ultimately, this is shown off by the events of 950 itself. The precipitating event came in November of that year, when King Lothair, long a figurehead, died at the age of 24 in his palace prison. The story most popular at the time is that Lothair was poisoned. While there is some reason to question the story, most of the sources that deal with this event directly and from the rough time period were actually being sponsored by Lothair's widow, Adelaide, who is actually a saint, Saint Adelaide. So here's the part of the episode where I get to raise the question of whether a saint lied to history. So this is fun. The issue here is that poisoning Lothair may not have been the best move for Berengar, and that the poisoning story does make things rather convenient for Adelaide. To the latter point, Adelaide would eventually remarry, and remarry well. Her new husband would base some land claims on her widowhood, and it was pretty important that this whole thing with Lothair be above board, and that Adelaide be blameless in the whole thing. Adelaide, as a grieving widow of a murdered husband, is much more sympathetic than Adelaide, a pawn in a political marriage whose useless husband died in prison and who then made another political marriage and used the land claims of this woman to justify a war. Ultimately, both narratives fit the facts as known, but what is there to suggest one version over the other? I guess let's take a look at Berengar's incentives in this situation. We're given no real reason why Berengar would now, after five years, suddenly murder Lothair. I mean, he had five years, why now? And remember all that legitimacy stuff I just discussed? Though Berengar had been wielding power for five years now, the calculus there had not shifted much. Berengar still had an only tenuous claim to the throne and limited political resources. But these points can be played pretty easily the other way. Berengar had had five years to learn everything he needed to know about how to govern Italy, and to associate himself with power in the minds of the aristocracy. They were now used to coming to him if they needed stuff from the king. On the other hand, having Lothair around, clearly a prisoner in Berengar's thrall, opened Berengar up to the possibility of a rebellion or opposition coalescing around this figurehead. Having Lothair around reminded everyone of Berengar's illegitimacy. Dumping him when things were basically stable would give Berengar the ability to deal with the ramifications from a position of strength, and not in the midst of a crisis. 
In the absence of further information, we probably can't say for sure which version is true. Personally, I tend to value the witness testimony of a widow, whatever her potential political needs, over the speculation of cynical historians. After all, no one is suggesting that Adelaide herself poisoned Lothair. I don't think that the ulterior motive being ascribed to Adelaide is particularly strong, especially given that the sources we have were written by people very close to her and repeatedly dwell on these events. I think it would be more politically convenient to try and forget that Lothair existed rather than to mourn him. Anyway, that's my interpretation. Either way, Lothair died, and I think he was killed. And either way, Berengar now had to deal with that whole legitimacy thing. Berengar had a pretty straightforward, two-part plan to deal with his lack of legitimacy. First, he called a diet, and had the aristocracy name himself and his son, Edelbert, as co-kings. This was pretty common at the time. He had done the same thing, something that people would probably have appreciated. All the same, there was apparently some amount of opposition and muttering in the diet, so Berengar's claim needed further buttressing. This brings us to part two of the plan. Berengar needed to transfer legitimacy to himself from one of the previous claimants to the throne. The way that was done in the Middle Ages was through marriage. Berengar was already married, but Edelbert was not. There were a number of potential spouses for Edelbert, but the most obvious was already in prison in their castle. Adelaide, widow of Lothair and daughter of Rudolf II of Burgundy, daughter to one king, wife of another. Adelaide was a living claim to legitimacy, and, wouldn't you know it, newly swinging single. It is pretty easy to be flip about most of the people I deal with in this show. Most of them are little more than overambitious, uneducated thugs who suffer from the consequences of their own bad decision-making. Several of them are named Berengar. But it is hard not to sympathize with Adelaide at this point in her life. Sure, she was a privileged member of the nobility who benefited from wealth forcibly extracted from the peasantry. But she was also more or less not fully in control of her destiny up to this point. Her father, King Rudolf II of Burgundy, had married her to the son of Hugh, his biggest rival, as a way to make peace. She was only 15 at the time. She was raised to be a queen, but since the marriage went off, she had been little more than a pawn. Her father-in-law, Hugh, had used her marriage to his son as a pretext for attempting to disinherit her brother. We have no real knowledge of her relationship with Lothair, although we know they had a daughter together. In all likelihood, they were not even allowed to be together during the five-year imprisonment of Lothair by Berengar II. Uh, a male heir for Lothair at this point would have been very inconvenient for Berengar, you see. So, whatever her relationship with Lothair, he would have been a familiar face and a protector. Her cousin and hagiographer, Odilo of Cluny, summarized the situation succinctly when he noted that she was, quote, denied even the comforts of her spouse, end quote. When Lothair was finally killed, it would have been the end of one kind of torment, of not knowing what was happening to her husband, and the start of another, as Berengar, murderer of her husband, tried to force her to marry his son, Adelbert. But here, Adelaide came up and took control of her destiny. She adamantly and vocally refused to marry Adelbert. Now, many women in history were forced to marry against their will. In the last episode, we saw Louis IV marry the widow of the Duke of Lorraine, a marriage that was probably not entirely voluntary, given that this woman's brother was in a state of open warfare with her new husband, who was using her as an excuse to annex her dead husband's land. So even for members of the nobility, this was always a thing that could happen. But Adelaide was in something of a unique position, both because of the unique horror of her situation, but also because there were already a number of people who were unhappy with Berengar's reign. Adelaide, to her credit, stepped up and took the opportunities she was given. 
The people who were unhappy with Berengar's reign included powerful people, who were alarmed by rumors of Lothair's murder, and who demanded, and were granted, the right to visit Adelaide. Most notably in this number was the Bishop of Reggio. Adelaide loudly proclaimed her opposition to the marriage, to the bishop and others, and that was enough to throw a spanner in the works for Berengar. Now, we should say the rules for marriage would not really be settled for another century at this point, and in other situations the church either winked at or was helpless in the face of forced marriages. The church's role in marriage was not fully clear, and in many places the opinions of the wedded couple were secondary, particularly in the case of the bride. But there was clearly a distinction that was supposed to exist between marriage and, you know, rape. And having a bishop say that you couldn't marry due to the opposition of a bride pretty well stalled the chances of the wedding. That Berengar needed this wedding. And so Adelaide needed to be made to change her testimony. To us, of course, such a change would have been fishy, but in the Middle Ages, forced consent was still consent. So Adelaide was moved to an isolated castle in gradually worsening conditions. Her servants were taken away from her, all her fancy bling and doodads. Undoubtedly, food was not ample or the conditions comfortable. But we're also told that Adelaide was directly physically assaulted and abused by Berengar and his wife, Willa. Here again, we actually see evidence of Berengar's worsening administrative situation. Torturing people and intimidating people into things was, of course, part and parcel of the exercise of power in, well, almost all eras. But here we see that Berengar's rule had become extremely personal. Berengar travels with his family in the entourage, and they all participate in the process of government as a unit. This is very different from the way other royal families have behaved in our story. Often, in Italy, the wife ran the bureaucracy and the household, while the son fulfilled some political or military role separate from that performed by his father, which was also military and political. In other words, there was a division of labor, and, you know, we often had the father in one place, the son in another, and the wife at home sort of pulling all the strings. There was a delegation of authority. Berengar and his family are acting like nothing so much as members of the minor nobility that they were, before they fell into power. Anyway, even with Adelaide locked in Berengar's castle, her supporters were able to offer some assistance. The Bishop of Reggio was able to see her again, and insisted that a loyal cleric of his be allowed to stay as her servant. The abuse continued, but with the cleric, Adelaide was able to execute a desperate plan. Using a tapestry as cover, Adelaide and this cleric dug an escape tunnel, straight up Shawshank Redemption style. One night, the guards came to check on Adelaide, and she was just gone. The two escaped into a nearby swamp. The cleric uh, left Adelaide in the swamp for safekeeping and made contact with one Edelbert Atto of Canosa, the owner of a nearby castle who just happened to be a vassal of Bishop Reggio. While Adelaide was in the swamp, she was reportedly visited by a miraculous fisherman who fed her fish and then vanished, and this is the basis of her canonization. Be that as it may, Edelbert Atto retrieved Adelaide from the swamp, but word leaked out and Berengar sent men to besiege her in the castle. Before the net closed in, Adelaide managed to send out a messenger to ask for help. In return for saving her from her predicament, Adelaide offered to marry her savior. The messenger, of course, went to the one place where exiles from Italy were welcome, and which had the power to effect an intervention. This was, of course, the court of Otto in East Francia. Otto was at this time wrapping up the consolidation of his throne. He had spent the last few years mopping up his border wars installing friends and relatives in key positions that diminished the power of the dukes of the stem duchies, and included in this group of friends were a number of bishops, who were given large tracts of land. Unable to have children themselves, and sitting in positions which were filled in <clears throat> consultation with the crown, these land grants not only helped buttress Otto's rule politically, they helped burnish his Carolingian bona fides. These land grants helped position Otto as a friend of the church, 
The economic resources they provided also helped revive education and learning, as Otto helped the bishops restart the bishopric schools founded by Charlemagne. Otto's court was also the home of the school, and was becoming home to an intellectual life and culture. But not all was well for Otto. As a young man, Otto had been married to Edith of England, a daughter of Alfred the Great. The two had two children, Ludolf and Lutgard. Though it was a political marriage, Edith and Otto seemed to have been very happy, and she accompanied him on campaigns. Unfortunately, she died in 945, and Otto was said to mourn for her with more than expected sincerity. Still, this was five years ago now. Otto had had time to mourn, and had maybe buried himself in work, devastating Denmark and the like, when suddenly he received a call for help from a newly bereaved widow. Of course, the political and strategic value of Adelaide's proposal could not have been lost on him. The ability to intervene in Italy, to get access to the Pope, to follow in Charlemagne's footsteps in crossing the Alps, would have been attractive to Otto, though I think I have made clear had kind of a thing for Charlemagne. Moreover, Adelaide was not a bad catch from a more personal perspective. Only 15 at the time of her first marriage, she was still a young woman in her early 20s. Exiles already in Otto's court, such as Liutprand, would have been able to convey to Otto rumors of her good looks and intelligence. And of course, he didn't need to be told about her fiery personality, given her daring escape from prison, or her shrewdness as a political actor, given the contents of her message. Different sources emphasize different aspects of Otto's decision-making process. Liutprand emphasizes that Otto went south solely to right the numerous wrongs being done to the Italian aristocrats by the evil Berengar II. Certainly the presence of exiles in the Italian court would have made this issue present in Otto's mind. Of course, to modern observers, this seems a bit tenuous, and it looks a lot more, given what we know about Liutprand, like Liutprand was trying to say that Otto did not owe his position in Italy to a mere woman. Modern observers choose to emphasize Otto's desire for increased political position and power, taking advantage of this situation with Berengar and Adelaide to secure it for himself. Italy was still wealthy, and having even a bridgehead over the Alps would have been a benefit for Otto. But in the circumstances, we are in the unique position of having a third viewpoint. Adelaide's. Now, nothing she wrote personally survives, but as the matron of the most cosmopolitan and well-educated court in Europe, and as a woman uniquely in charge of her own fate, Adelaide would sponsor her own chroniclers in the years that followed. Notably, we have the plays written by Hrotzvitha, who was also Adelaide's close cousin, probably her confidant, and one of the few women whose writings survive from the early Middle Ages. And as plays, no less, that's actually pretty rare. From this and other sources written under Adelaide's sponsorship, we can read the story as Adelaide wanted it remembered. And in these stories, Otto was not moved by power politics, but by sympathy at her distress, tales of her intelligence and beauty. I will let you decide which is true, but before you entirely discount Adelaide's version of events, remember that Otto was a widower himself, though undoubtedly he wanted access to Adelaide's huge tracts of land, People can have multiple motivations. At the very least, the two seem to have gotten on very well. The plays and biographies of her were mostly written later in her life, and at a time that Adelaide clearly viewed the start of their relationship as something which was important to her, and something that was an object of fond nostalgia. This nostalgic story, told for an older Adelaide, was of a time when she was young and beautiful, and was swept off her feet by a dashing young king, who rode to her rescue from across the mountains. As an added bittersweet note, Adelaide survived Otto by quite a number of years, and there is the possibility that the stories being told in the works that survived were written for an Adelaide still mourning for that handsome young king. 
Whatever his motivations, in 950, Otto resolved to rescue Adelaide and gathered an army. In September of 951, Otto moved into Italy with a huge, well-trained army. Berengar's administration folded like a piece of Scandinavian furniture. Everywhere Otto went, Italian nobles recognized his rule, and Berengar was forced to flee. Otto made a beeline for Pavia, the capital of Lombardy, and sent his brother Henry with a division of the army to fetch Adelaide. Otto was crowned as king of the Lombards, and when Adelaide reached Pavia, the two were married. Several people were notably absent from the festivities. Berengar was at large, as he had fled to his base of support in northwestern Italy. Also absent was also absent was Leodolf, Otto's son from his first marriage, and the Archbishop of Mainz. They had left Italy even before the coronation, and their absence boded ill for the future. But for both Otto and for us, that's in the future. For today, let us end here. The story of today's episode is that of several stories. First, there's the Shakespearean tragedy. Berengar started his rule full of promise, but he found that his position did not convey actual power. Pushed by his lack of resources, his administration became more and more frail as time went by. Ultimately, this lack of resources pushed him into a fatal act. He murdered Lothair and attempted to torture Adelaide into marrying his son Adelbert. But the story is also that of a courtly romance. Adelaide, a fiery and self-willed young woman, resolved to resist and found unexpected aid. She escaped her prison and was left wandering in a swamp until rescued by the vassal of one of her friends. But she was not out of danger yet. In the final climactic set-piece, Berengar sent his forces to besiege her in a castle, and she sent desperate word to Otto for help. Ultimately, Otto arrived just in the nick of time, and as his forces rolled into northern Italy, the frail administration of Berengar crumbled. Having been rescued by her knight in German armor, Adelaide married Otto in Pavia, the ancient capital of Italy, and finally became the queen she was raised to be. Based on the acclamation of the Italian aristocracy and the legitimate claims of Adelaide as the daughter and wife of a king, Otto was named king of the Lombards. But then, maybe the story is more like an American TV drama all dark and gritty. As everyone celebrates, shadowy figures escape the vigilance of the godly and the good. Berengar flees to Ivray, and the son of Otto's first marriage ducks out the back, worried for his future. As the credits roll, three words appear on the screen. To be continued. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning This month I have several new donors to thank. First we have a patron who shall hereafter be known as Duncan, the Aluminum Duke. Next we have Damas, the Vincible. And finally... Patron Jeremiah asked to be known as Jeremiah the Ginger, Archbishop of Farmlandia. Welcome and many thanks to all three. May the sun ever provide illumination adequate to the task of avoiding toe-stubbing incidents. To join their serried ranks, head to the website, Wittenberg to Westphalia, podcast.weebly.com, and go to the store page.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. 